Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. God has not changed his address. God still lives where God has always lived, in your heart. God is still doing what God has always done, loving you. God is still who God has always been, the source and supply of all that you need and desire. Some of us don't think God is still around because we haven't visited God in such a long time. With all the changes and the challenges, ups and downs, additions, subtractions in our lives, our faith in God may have faded. Some of us may even have concluded that God has gone away and that there is absolutely no way to find God in the midst of all the pain, confusion, discontent, disharmony, and discord in our own lives. Ah, nothing could be farther from the truth. God is still in the same place, in the midst of your need, being the same way, merciful and forgiving, for the same reason, love, under the same circumstances, waiting for you to acknowledge and accept how much you depend on God. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair reminds us that God is still here and we still depend on God for all of life. It's a good reminder, one that we all need from time to time. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us one more time into the Archbishop's Corner, where your input will provide us with important keys to creating a more productive and positive relationship with God and His people. Well, how are you today? Fine, thank you. We've got a lot going on this week, so let's delve right into it. For instance, today begins International Week of Happiness at Work. The general opinion about work is this. No one wants to do it. So in hopes of bringing happiness into the workplace, International Week of Happiness at Work was created. And starting today and lasting through the week, happiness at work is a priority. This holiday itself became an initiative towards bringing people from all over the world together to be happier in the workplace. Archbishop, what advice would you give to employers that might help them develop a happier work environment? Before you speak about environment, we have to talk about the very nature of work, something that has been part of God's creation and that is uh, part and parcel of our faith uh, and, and about the reality, the meaning of, of being a human person. So I think it's not just about um, some kind of technique or superficial way of uh, making things happy, but the more profound question of how a person sees their work as part of their vocation in life. And I think for a lot of people today, uh, they don't necessarily see it that way. I mean, in a happier time when there was more uh, marriage and family life, people uh, could take uh, derive satisfaction uh, in their work because they were providing for their loved ones and the family. Uh, today, as many people, more people are not getting married and uh, there's so much insecurity and uncertainty in life about how to settle down and how to, 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 to find your way uh, with a vocation. I think that has a profound impact on work. Now, obviously, a lot of young people are settled down because, you know, that's not a bad thing to be settled down in the sense that you've made a commitment to the life that you feel God's calling you to and you have responsibility for other people in, in marriage and family. Uh, so there are that, that still is always the case. But for many people, I tell young people, you know, I say, today our society tells you you can be whatever you want to be. I said, I know that sounds good, but that I feel sorry for you. That's a tremendous burden because... Society tells you you can be whatever you want. How do you possibly 
make you know decide and and feel you're making the right decision, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm giving you a very long answer to your question, but I I think uh, you know the more profound question is if you feel you are uh, contributing to the good of of others in the the, the the most important commitments you you have in life, and that could be to uh, your your spouse and children. It could be to your elderly parents. It could be, I don't know, to something you're doing. Well, then I think that contributes uh, to, to a sense of purpose uh, in your work. Along with what you're saying, Archbishop, for instance, if you're digging a ditch and you don't know why you're digging that ditch, but then your boss comes along and tells you that you're digging uh, this ditch as the beginning of the foundation for a new hospital to be built or a new school to be built, all of a sudden there's more meaning in that for yourself, and it's much more fulfilling. Yes, and I've, I've dwelt on your own relationships that, uh, and obligations that of, of uh, family and marriage and such that would give you uh, a sense of purpose in your work. But you're right. Even uh, secondarily, there is uh, the, the – and by the way, of course, that also applies to yourself, that you are providing for yourself mm-hmm. in a responsible way. But it also has to do with building up the, the society and building up the common good. And if you feel your work – uh, not only feel your work, but you, but you, you, you know that how your work is somehow helping other people in some fashion. Well, then that also becomes rewarding. And I mean, work can be dr- drudgery. It can be there are aspects of it that are not always very uh, rewarding immediately. But you have a sense of accomplishment, in other words. And I think that that's a very important thing too. I mean, if you're a carpenter that can make a beautiful object, you get a satisfaction out of that. If you're working in an office as part of a big administrative thing or something, it's maybe not you don't have the same sense. Uh, but hopefully in the big picture, you, you can appreciate that you're doing something for the good. Tuesday, Archbishop, is the start of Emotional Wellness Month. It's a time to get more out of everyday life with laughter and enjoyment. Does Hartford's Archbishop ever feel down? And what do you do to pick <laughs> yourself up? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I like any human being, I have my good days and my bad days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have our disappointments and our our happy moments of good things being accomplished. But I think the important thing is to have an even keel and to uh, make that part of our, our faith and our part of our vocation, our responsibility, and to see the big picture, you know. Um, so I guess you could say that just like anybody else, I, I, I have my moments uh, one way or the other. But uh, all in all, I'm very happy with the life God has given me and the responsibilities, and I want to fulfill them the best I can. International Day of Nonviolence is on Wednesday in honor of the birth anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi left a legacy of peace, and his commitment to nonviolence inspired future human rights movements around the globe, including those of, of Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela. Well, today there is still much civil unrest across our nation and the world. What can people learn from Gandhi's message of nonviolence, Archbishop? Gandhi was a modern model, if you will, of uh, certain uh, fundamental truths that are also part of Christianity. I mean, when you you talk about what Jesus says uh, to us, teaches us, we also see that in the gospel. You know, Jesus speaks very forcefully about... uh, not returning evil for evil, and not, well, you know, turn the other cheek. The, the, these kinds of things are part of, of gospel teaching as well. So there's a, a, a certain fundamental truth there that applies to people of all uh, nations and religions, uh, or should, and that is that uh, much more can be achieved by a courageous witness 
uh, than can be achieved by violence. And of course, sometimes in a sinful world, uh, to defend ourselves, uh, their, their violence is there. But that's not the normal way of trying to uh, deal with social ills, nor should it be. There has to be a, a way in society and for the world to pursue the goals of justice and peace uh, through uh, means that are not violent. And we have to do everything we can to promote that. I certainly agree with that message. And Thursday, October 3rd, is Bring Your Bible to School Day. And it's a day that convinces students to bring their Bibles to school in support of their faith. But a controversy has arisen because of it. And I'd like your take on this, Archbishop. Drew Brees is uh, an NFL quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. And he cut a video supporting Bring Your Bible to School Day. And here's what he said in that video. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5-7, for we live by faith, not by sight. So I want to encourage you to live out your faith on Bring Your Bible to School Day and share God's love with friends. You're not alone. And that was the audio of the video, and Drew Brees got backlash for encouraging Christian kids to bring their Bible to school. What was so controversial about that was that Bring Your Bible to School Day was started and is backed by Focus on the Family, an organization that has taken a lot of heat by many people. Many have labeled them as being anti-gay and anti-LGBTQ. For instance, Newsweek said, Drew Brees, New Orleans Saints quarterback, records video produced by anti-gay group Focus on the Family. Yahoo says, Drew Brees needs to apologize. Let's listen now to what Drew Brees himself says in response to the backlash. I'd like to set the record straight. Um, I live by two very simple Christian fundamentals, and that is love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the fact that these rumors um, have been spread about me are completely untrue. What I did was I filmed a video recently um, that was encouraging kids to bring their Bibles to school for National Bring Your Bible to School Day. To bring your Bibles to school to be able to live out your faith with confidence, and I even gave one of my favorite Bible verses. It was as simple as that. Now, that was NFL quarterback Drew Brees responding to critics about promoting Bring Your Bible to School Day, which is October 3rd. What's your take on this whole thing, Archbishop? Well, a couple of things. One, I certainly don't want to comment on different organizations. I really, I mean, I've heard of them. I really don't know much about them. So that's not uh, a particular interest to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the, the fundamental concept, well, certainly I agree with him that in this sense, that all of us uh, are called to bear witness to our faith. And we're called to do it in a way that is respectful of the belief of others, uh, that is not uh, in your face kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, not to be ashamed to say that, for example, that we're Catholic or that we believe in Jesus. And uh, as uh, Pope John Paul, uh, St. John Paul said uh, so uh, succinctly, uh, we always propose the faith. We never are to impose the faith, but to pr propose the faith. And of course, proposing it is done in different ways. It can be done in very uh, simple, quiet ways, uh, by good example, by a kind word, uh, and we, we don't try to impose. Secondly, I would say that if he's talking about bringing school, your Bible to school, well, I think that obviously doesn't create a problem for a religious school. It should not create a problem for a public school if, by that, it simply means that somebody uh, brings their Bible to school, uh, you know, as part of their uh, books or something, uh, to, to, as a sign that they are they believe. But if it means uh, in our society where there are people of different faiths, uh, uh, different religions, uh, you know, then we have to. Th there is a certain uh, caution that we have to have that we uh, we bear witness to our faith in the way I've described but we don't uh, try to overwhelm or impose it 
uh, uh, on uh, others. So let's say there are Muslim kids in the school or Jewish kids in the school or uh, Buddhists, you know. So that that can be, I, I think it's, and I think it's also very challenging for uh, kids to, to really understand these subtleties. So I'm kind of torn. In a way, everything he says, I, I agree with, and I, I can't, uh, I, I take him uh, at his word that this is uh, certainly uh, meant to be a very positive and good and charitable thing to bear witness to our faith. But I can see it could create some difficulties, uh, how young people might understand this or how it might how it might take place. Wouldn't this be a teachable moment for the teacher in a public school to instruct the children as to what it means to respect each other regardless of one's faith commitment or if they have no faith at all? But just to oh, talk yes. about respecting I don't know if that's, one's religion, though. I don't know if that's allowed, uh, and I don't mean that cynically because I really don't anymore any, the way that things are going sometimes about what is forbidden, you know. Uh, but certainly, I think that's an essential part of education is for uh, uh, young people to understand, first of all, their right to uh, the uh, integrity of practicing their faith, you know, religious freedom, but also to respect the religious freedom of others and uh, not that we, you know, not to try to impose it upon other people. So I think there's a, a way of, uh, that. I think that has to be an integral part of education of the human person to understand these things. A lot of that, of course, should come from home. That's the primary place where it should come from and from a church. But uh, whether that can be done in the public schools, I hope in some fashion it certainly would be. Well, I, I don't want to push us along too quickly, but we um, have one other thing that we want to talk about that's happening this week, and that is the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi is on Friday. One of the church's best-known, most beloved saints, of course, our current Holy Father, Pope Francis, took the name Francis after him. St. Francis is the patron saint of animals and the environment. He abandoned a life of luxury for a life devoted to Christ. Is there anything you'd like to, to say uh, regarding the feast of St. Francis this October 4th? Well, yes, and I, I'm always thinking that maybe I've said this on a previous show and I'm repeating myself. But That's all right. Most people can don't remember that far ago, ago, right? I'm shocked. You mean they don't remember what I say? I, th- I thought you did, at least. They don't take it down verbatim, word for word, like I do. Oh, okay. In other words, if it's worth saying, it's worth re- saying repeating. again, yes. Okay. Well, the point I would simply make is St. Francis uh, today is somewhat instrumentalized. He's used as a patron of all kinds of things, which is not invalid at all, you know, like about the environment or about animals and such. But if you really look at St. Francis's uh, life and his the things that have come down to us from him, his primary uh, me- uh, message was the gospel. Uh, that is to repent and believe. Uh, that's what Jesus, when he began his ministry, that's what his message was, and that was St. Francis's too. That uh, he's not just a kind of uh, universal uh, patron of uh, secular uh, themes. Not to say that caring for the environment or animals is is just secular. It's not. It's it is also religious. But I think we have to have the whole picture of Saint uh, Francis and uh, uh, try to take to heart everything that he stood for and preached. Let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this twenty sixth Sunday in Ordinary Time. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, the sixteenth chapter. After the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, ask for your thoughts on what the gospel means. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me 
and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. No, they won't even repent or be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. What are your thoughts on this gospel, Archbishop? Well, we don't have to be too perceptive to realize that Jesus is really talking about things to come, that uh, if they don't believe uh, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. Uh, in a sense, Jesus was talking about himself, right? I mm -hmm. mean, uh, and he was also saying that uh, he as much as said in his ministry that what was written in, in the Old Testament was really about him. Uh, and so, in a sense, if hearers really open their minds and hearts and souls to the Holy Spirit, they would realize that Jesus was the fulfillment and the answer to all of that the Old Testament had borne witness to, all it had hoped for, uh, and all that God had promised. But because they were blind, blinded to that, many of them, certainly not all, but, uh, you know, notoriously the, the uh, Pharisees uh, were blinded to this, then Jesus is saying, then they wouldn't believe even if somebody rose from the dead. And, of course, we know that that's referring to his own uh, self. Uh, so I think that's pretty much the message, and it's still a message for us today, too, you know, that God has given us his word in the scriptures, a living word filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, so he is to be found there. You know, really, the Old Testament is the key to understanding the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Not that we don't respect our Jewish brothers and sisters who read it without the Lord, uh, and, you know, they were God's chosen people, and the, those writings have a meaning and a, a spiritual value and, uh, for them. But uh, for us, ultimately, uh, as believers in Christ, we would see that really the, 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 that it's all about him. Archbishop, is not our presence on this earth intended to serve some higher purpose than getting our own little souls into heaven? Are we not here as more than selfish seekers of personal salvation? Are we not servants of the living God with a, with a job to do? Well, that's a very eloquent question. Uh, clearly, that you can't save yourself if you, don't, if you don't love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, then you will do more than just things that are self-serving. Uh, so yes, you have to. We're all part of. The, remember, we're part of the body of Christ. We're members of something. Uh, I mean, it's a contradiction to think that you can. You just worry about yourself. I mean, if you're if you're a member of the church, you're baptized into the body of Christ, which is the church, and you have to have live by loving God above all things and your neighbor as yourself. So clearly, it, it's it's more than just a private uh, a private thing. Well, we get we get to know God through Christ, as He said, "Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father." And we get to know Christ by helping other people. As often as you did it for one of my brothers or sisters, you did it for me. Why can't we get the message? 
There's so many people like Lazarus who need our help in this world, huh? Well, I think most people, uh, you know, are want to do the right thing. I mean, most people are good-hearted. I don't, I don't think that we. I mean, we're becoming very contentious in our country about many things, but I think some people might not do things uh, out of to their neighbor in need out of fear. Some do it, yes, because they're they're selfish or they're blinded to the. There are people like that too, but I think most people are, are good-hearted and want to, want to help. Um, and I think we have to do everything to encourage that. Let's take a look at some of the uh, questions that have been submitted by our listeners. And the one that I want to take, first of all, uh, dovetails into this particular gospel that we, we just uh, talked about. And this is from Erica from Waterbury. Erica says, hurricanes are devastating storms, and every time hurricane season comes around, I wonder how I can help those who have lost everything from the storms, especially after seeing the damage from Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. I felt a strong pull to help. What does the Catholic Church do to help those affected by natural disasters? Is there anything the Archdiocese of Hartford does to help? Well, Erica, as you know, we take up a lot of collections nationally for hurricane uh, damage uh, or for some other catastrophe. Uh, When it's outside our own country, as the Bahamas are, even though they're so close to the shore, uh, that doesn't mean that the Church doesn't help, but we don't necessarily take up a national collection. And I'm sure if you look on the website for Catholic Relief Services, you will uh, undoubtedly find something there uh, to to be of assistance uh, uh, through the through the agencies of the church. Catholic Relief Services is one of the great world uh, organizations for uh, uh, help of people in need. There might even be something more on on the web uh, in that regard. If you even you know Google a Catholic. Uh, uh, hurricane relief to the Bahamas, you might find something that I think would be helpful. But the, what I'm getting at originally is that we we don't necessarily take up a, a national collection for things that happen in, in, in other places in the world, because of which you can imagine there are many, many things. Well, what we've done at WJMJ, Archbishop, we've uh, asked our listeners if they so would like, we'd make it possible to send a check to Catholic Relief Services on their behalf and uh, do what we can to uh, to help the people of the Bahamas because they've experienced such a devastating blow by that Category 5 hurricane. I might understand from that that you've already checked out with Catholic Relief Services and you know that they are doing something? Yes, yes, definitely. Right, I, as I suspected, yes. Okay. Another question from Celine in Bridgeport. Celine says, I'm a patient at St. Vincent's Hospital, and here they are now part of Hartford Healthcare which is a largely secular health care system, what is being done to ensure that the Christian principles and traditions I've come to know and love at St. Vincent's are upheld under this new ownership? Well, Celine, let me say first that uh, St. Vincent's in Bridgeport is is part of that Bridgeport diocese, not Hartford. So I am not directly involved in any way in what transpired there. I do know, however, that the Catholic health uh, corporations, of which our hospitals here in Hartford, Catholic hospitals here in Hartford are part, uh, they, they did, over time, look to see if they could make this work, uh, to see if St. Vincent's could be uh, part of a Catholic health care system. But for various reasons, it just proved not to be uh, doable financially uh, in the, or, and in other organizational ways, I suppose, as well. And so they passed on, on that, or it just it wasn't possible. Like I say, I don't know the particulars of that, uh, that investigation or, or exploration so they became part of a non-Catholic, a secular healthcare system. But I can tell you that here, in, I was very 
uh, pleased that uh, St. Francis Hospital uh, in Hartford and St. Mary's in Waterbury, they become part of the Trinity Healthcare, mm. uh, which is a very large Catholic healthcare association, and they are very, uh, they, they come to see me regularly to talk about uh, their Catholic identity. We make sure that this, uh, that, that it remains true to its uh, Catholic uh, roots and Catholic faith. Mary from Windsor says, do Catholics believe Jesus Christ is really present in the Eucharist and not just there symbolically or metaphorically? Well, that's an easy question to answer, Mary. Yes, uh, we certainly do. Uh, that, that Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. And of course, when we talk about uh, who Jesus is and we talk about the whole uh, theology and uh, philosophy be, behind this, when we talk about uh, the whole uh, of the scriptures from beginning to end, we, it all converges in the ch- faith of the church that, yes, it truly is uh, the body and blood of Christ. Tom from Prospect says, Speaking about religion is often considered offensive in today's world. Our culture is changing rapidly, and many of the methods we once used to tell people about Christ have become less effective. What are some ways we can evangelize and fill our churches again? Well, Tom, uh, this show and the next one wouldn't be enough uh, to talk about this topic. Uh, and I certainly am no font of wisdom to be able to, uh, to answer it adequately on my own. But I will tell you that uh, this is very much on the forefront of, the, of what the church is uh, concerned with these days. Uh, it's very much on the minds uh, and, on the, and in the business, um, the deliberations of our bishops' conference. And uh, we are having an Archdiocesan Synod, as I hope most of our listeners know, and also in the uh, propositions to be considered by the Synod and the uh, discussion, this is uh, front and center of, uh, of uh, what we would like to, uh, to consider moving forward. You know, you, Tom, you said speaking about religion is often considered offensive in today's world. This harkens back to the earlier discussion that Father John brought up about uh, the football uh, player and uh, mm-hmm. Bibles Perfect. in school. And, you know, we have to, we have to um, uh, approach these things today with a real recognition of uh, the uh, multicultural, multireligious reality as well as the reality of people who, in growing number, who subscribe to no religion. And that makes it challenging for us, as I tried to say uh, when I answered that question, about doing it in such a way that respects other people uh, and observes the proper courtesies and limits, but at the same time doesn't make us hide our heads uh, and our words away, uh, that we do have to uh, find a way to bear witness to our faith by the kind of life that each one of us lives and by our... um, willingness not to be afraid uh, to pray or to speak appropriately uh, as the occasion requires, and not to, to be ashamed of our religion or to try to hide it. Going forward, Archbishop, are, are you enthusiastic about the, the challenge that the Church faces today to re-evangelize our people and, and to turn back the diminishing numbers of people that have given up participating in the church. Let's see if we can't get them back to a regular participation. Let's fill our churches again. Is that something that, that you're hopeful about? Well, we always have to be hopeful because it's not up to us. It's it's Christ's church. Uh, and uh, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know, you know, we have to work and pray, uh, certainly, um, that, and that... that uh, for a great re- rebirth uh, of, of faith, beginning with our own Catholic people, so many of whom uh, may be nominally Catholic, but uh, really you have to wonder um, how much uh, they really accept or live by some of the things that are central to our faith and, and morals. But 
it's God's world, you know. We, mm-hmm. we don't know. We have to just uh, keep uh, being faithful and doing what we can, being proactive, uh, and the rest is up to God. With also respect to human freedom, you know. It's possible for people, for a nation uh, to, to uh, turn away from God, as we see throughout the whole Old Testament. We see it also in through history. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing? Lord, amid the challenges of our day, we ask you to give us the wisdom, inspiration, and strength to go out into the world and make disciples of others out of love for you and love for others. They may know you, the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray that we may have the wisdom and discretion to know how to do this fruitfully in a world that is not always appreciative of our religious witness. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next Sunday at 7 o'clock with a repeat at 11.30. Until that time, enjoy this upcoming week. Thank you. You too. Thank you.